Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It is a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Kevin Doyle. You know him from his most famous role on Downton Abbey. He was the second footman, Joseph Mosley. We'll talk about Downton Abbey and whether or not fans can expect more adventures from the Earl of Grantham, Lady Mary, and the downstairs crew, Mr. Carson, Mrs. Hughes, and of course, Mr. Mosley, a little bit later on. We'll also talk about his latest project, Pressure. Now, if you find yourself in Toronto in the next four or maybe five weeks, you'll want to check out this stage show, now playing at the Royal Alexandra Theatre. In the show, Kevin Doyle plays Dr. James Stagg, the real-life meteorologist whose weather forecasts determined the date of the D-Day landings as part of Operation Overlord. It's a very intense but also rather funny show about the most important weather forecast of all time. More on that later. First, let's meet the star of the movie Unplugging, a new comedy now on VOD. Comedian and actor Matt Walsh was nominated for two Primetime Emmy Awards for his role as Mike McClintock in Veep. He's a founding member of the Upright Citizens Brigade sketch comedy troupe and was a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He's appeared in such films as Road Trip, Bad Santa, and The Hangover. He co-wrote and stars in the new film, Unplugging, a comedy now on VOD that sees a workaholic husband and wife, played by Matt and Eva Longoria, who are both permanently glued to their phones. In an effort to relax, they go off the grid on a rustic getaway with no cell service, internet, or social media to revive their marriage. But what starts as the perfect weekend getaway quickly spirals out of control with unearthly encounters, strong edibles, cranky locals, and a pesky one-eyed dog. Without GPS to guide them or social media to save them, they're forced to rediscover what truly matters. And that's each other. Here's a clip from the movie. What is a digital detox? We're going to unplug from our phones for the weekend. Connect with nature and each other. A sex vacation? Definitely not that. Nice, right? It's really remote. That's the magic of this area. Come out here to be who you really are. <gasps> Shut what? up! Did you hear Come that? On. We can do this. We're a team. Hey, get out of my truck! <laughs> you two doing bath salts out there? Matt Walsh joined me via Zoom. You co-wrote the script for this comedy, but the premise was actually inspired by something that happened to you. Just tell me a little bit about the setup of where the idea for unplugging came from. Well, it, it's sort of inspired by the obsession with technology and the fact that we're never, you know, without our little smartphones in our hand. And I pitched Brad, who's a buddy of mine, uh, Morris, what would it be like to survive like a soft apocalypse? Meaning like you have food, you have shelter, you have warmth, but you don't have cell phone and you don't have uh, Wi-Fi. And he liked that idea. And so together we wrote the story around a couple that ends up in that situation. And they're so freaked out by not having technology in their hands that they actually think that the world's ending and the Chinese are taking over our power grid. The interesting thing about the film, or one of the interesting things about the film, is that it is a real and relatable couple. This is a comedic 
premise and a comedic idea, but the people at the heart of it are real. And I think that anybody watching this who has their cell phones close at hand uh, can, yeah, there's yours, uh, can easily relate to the idea of, you know, what would happen and put themselves in it. And I think that's what makes this work so well is that it's relatable. And I think that makes for great comedy. Yeah, thank you. I, that is the goal. Like, I think we wanted to build a real couple that does love each other, but they're having mm. problems and they sought out uh, because Dan, the husband, is sort of figuring out his life. He's stuck in his garage making hot sauce and he, <laughs> he just freaks out and says, we got to get away. We got to rebuild the marriage. And so they go against his wife's best you know, thoughts. They go to the remote part of the world where you can't get cell phone, you can't get Wi-Fi and they get so freaked out that by the end of it, they think that the world's ending, you know, and it's like a comment. That's the ridiculous part. But the mm -hmm. the relatable stuff is true. It's like it's we all deal with it. Like I, I've said before, my wife and I will have a date night and I'll make her drive the car so she can't be on her phone. <laughs> now, this idea, probably, it seems to me, if I'm reading the timeline correctly, came up during the pandemic, uh, certainly was shot during the pandemic. Yeah. I wonder if while we were all in lockdown and most of us were glued to a screen or two of of some kind, if uh, that you found yourself leaning into your devices a little bit harder during the pandemic. And that's one of the things that might have uh, triggered this story. That is true. Like during the pandemic, we became even more dependent on screens. Like my children were homeschooling here and uh, all their play dates were via iPad. Mm -hmm. And so they developed this habit, which has continued post pandemic, where they're still jumping on Roblox uh, and playing with their friends in their bedrooms, you know, and uh, there's a lot more video gaming happening in this house. So the addiction to screens was uh, amplified during the pandemic. And yeah, it was something that reflected in the script as well, yeah. You're listening to Matt Walsh on The Richard Krause Show. His new comedy, Unplugging, is now on VOD. Do you think that technology has made it harder to balance uh, our work lives and home lives? I mean, I'm guessing from the premise of the film you do, uh, but in what ways do you think it does? Well, the unfortunate reality that we're always reachable, that we don't know how to put boundaries around uh, our accessibility, like just having this all the time, mm -hmm. um, the ease with which we'll settle into passively watching something as opposed to stepping out into nature and perhaps experiencing another human being in a restaurant or taking a hike. Uh, we're competing with the, you know, this now and movies on demand and everything yeah. at our fingertips. And so the sedentary lifestyle is like a challenge as well. So there's a million ways in which the fact that, and, and also the bombardment of information mm -hmm. is actually creates disinformation at times because you can be in a wormhole of information and decide that like the Chinese have hacked the grid and you haven't really looked at the real news or you haven't right. looked at the real world. So there's so many things that uh, the technological wave that we're in the middle of is, has really uh, made life hard. I really thought that when the internet first started, that we were going to have like everything, everything at our fingertips, the entirety of man's knowledge and uh, every uh, movie or at least clips from every movie that you'd ever want to see. So we would all become uh, really expanded in the way that we in, in our worldview. And instead, I think it's narrowed us down into these little niche 
characters because if I only want to know about silent movies from 1927, there's a website for that or probably more than one. Or if I only want to read disinformation left or right wing, it's there's a website for that as well. So I think the internet has actually uh, gone completely the opposite way of what it was meant to do in the beginning, which was to unite us all. I think it's driven this chasm between us that I don't know that we're ever going to be able to jump back and forth. Yeah. It had this hopefulness of like we, we were going to distribute this common information, we'd all be on the same page, right? In the mm-hmm. beginning, and that's not how it played out. And also, in addition to all the frivolous time wasting things we do, on you know, we're watching 15 second TikTok, TikTok videos, or Dan in the movie is watching like YouTube videos on how to like take the bruises off a banana, or like you know, like, <laughs> it's like amazing intelligent people time wasting on these devices i wonder if you look back uh at a time before we all had cell phones all the time what you would explain to your kids and i also wonder uh if when you were uh you know founding the upright citizens brigade when you were a young actor maybe having a cell phone with you would have been a more direct conduit to work and you wouldn't have had to like check your messages at home from pay phones all the time like i used to yeah, I mean, what we think of as normal, our kids look at like probably how we looked at cowboy movies, like the way yeah. we lived. Um, I remember moving to New York with the Upright Citizens Brigade and we had to get an answering service in the event that we got a job or we got yep. ticket sales. So we had to have somebody who had an answering machine, basically, or we had the physical answering machines. Uh, so that was something. And then like, I tell my kids the story of like, we were at a pool when I was a kid about 10 and somebody's mom didn't pick us up and it was getting dark and we had to scrounge and beg for a quarter so we could find a payphone, And that was our lifeline. Like we were so scared, like nobody would know where we were. So there there's those moments of adventure that came, came about from not having a phone. And I can't even understand how, normal email is like mm-hmm. baseline, baseline communication for all of us. And I don't know what the equivalent of email was before email. Like we're, I wasn't writing that many letters. <laughs> so I'm trying to think was, was that conversation just verbal or was it a phone call? Like I had brothers and sisters. I remember calling girls in high school and trying to flirt and maybe, see if I can get a date. And then my brother upstairs picking up the phone and trying to listen and ruining it. So there's like all sorts of like, I don't odd oddities. I, I can't even explain it to him, but they look at the way we lived as crazy. Like, but, but they also have nostalgia. This is way off topic, but they also have nostalgia for like, you know, these games, like a donkey Kong console mm-hmm. where, you, where you put a quarter in and you play it. Yep. Those things, those things maybe have nostalgia appeal, but they still have appeal. So I don't know. Some of it they like, but they're like, that must have been weird, Dad. I also wonder what we used to do before uh, we had bank cards and ATMs everywhere. Did you, yes. take enough, uh, did you take enough money out for the weekend? And how would you know? I don't remember. I don't remember what I used to do. That's the truth. Like, you're yeah. right. Like, we're so used to it now. I don't even know either. Yeah. Like, we must have had cash somewhere. I remember. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like ATMs are were another innovation, but the cell phone is the big one. Like mm-hmm. I got my 
first cell phone in 90, I'm going to say 97. And it was still texting on that predictive text where you had to hit the button three times. Yeah. But that was the beginning of the end. Yeah. Uh, you're working with Eva Longoria in this uh, film. She plays your wife in this film. And then you went on to work with her uh, another time at a film called Flame and Hot uh, that yeah. she directed. Tell me a little bit about what makes the 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 chemistry between you guys so strong. Well, Eva is that character. Eva is Janine. Her manager read the script and she said, oh, my God, this is you. Like, you have to do this movie. Like, because Eva is a type A, productive, wonderful, talented literally on set after we would cut she would be like producing movies or being the face of l'oreal like she has a child and a empire she's building like she's really incredibly productive and she to her credit she told me that her and her husband had to like carve out a a dinner moment where they no screens at the dinner table uh whatsoever even to show a photo of something they saw in the news study couldn't pull out the phone so she's wonderful and also because it was a smaller movie, she just came down to, we filmed it in Oklahoma as Chicago and she was in it to win it. She just like the spirit of being an artist. She would like move, you know, we did whatever it took to get people in the van, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a fancy movie set, you know? Do you find when you're working like that, uh, that your instincts take over? Cause you're not going to do, 120 takes of something and you can't probably go back to your giant airstream trailer and relax in the air conditioning while they're setting up the next shot you really just have to go for it and do you find that it it's perhaps like working on stage a little bit more where your 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 first thought is probably your best thought yeah i think smaller movies and smaller cast movies like this one are immediate like stage yeah i do mm-hmm. i think your instincts uh, you trust your instincts and you go with it and you can play. And I think because even I were basically carrying most of the movie, we had a real shorthand and, and camaraderie that we would try things and we would surprise each other and mess around. And in the middle of COVID, you know, which was also its own bizarreness, we mm-hmm. were very cloistered. So the only, the, the benefit of being in a small movie in a small town in the middle of COVID is like, you can only indulge your artist. Like there's nothing else to do really. Like, and it was, it was a blessing because you're focused on this and you're focused on making this project, you know? Yeah. You called shooting in Oklahoma. You said it was the uh, COVID progressive state of Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing not a lot of masks maybe and that kind of thing. Is that it? <laughs> uh, it was a mix in the cities. Yeah. There were more masks in the, in the rural areas, less masks, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Flamin' Hot, she's directing this. This is just briefly, tell me about this, because it sounds uh, kind of like a, a, a wild story. It's about the, the janitor from Frito-Lay uh, who uh, turned Flamin' Hot Cheetos into a thing. Yeah, Eva directed, uh, and I think she's might be the first Latino woman to direct a movie, which is crazy to think mm. about. But she directed a movie about this guy, Richard Montañez, who was a Mexican-American inside Frito-Lay. And he cold called corporate headquarters and said, you guys should make food for Mexican people. You're listening to Matt Walsh on The Richard Krause Show. His new comedy, Unplugging, is now on VOD. And so the guy's like, I'll, I'll come down. What do you got? And long story short, he saved the company because their market share, they make more money off of you know hot Fritos and all that, hot Cheetos, et cetera. 
So I play uh, a guy who's a factory worker uh, and a boss to the hero. This guy, Jesse Garcia, plays the hero. He's a wonderful actor. And it's a great movie. And uh, I think it'll be at South by Southwest. So I'm hoping to uh, get to see the final cut. I haven't seen the final cut, but I saw an early cut. And it's really wonderful. And it was a real thrill to step into because it's an exploration of being Mexican in America Mm -hmm. back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And it was neat to be amidst all these like great Mexican actors and just like, I don't know, step into that culture. Well, I think like unplugging, uh, what this film has is a very specific story. But the more specific the story is, the more universal it is. Unplugging is about two people trying to reconnect and trying to figure out their lives together. This is about an underdog. Flaming Hot is about an underdog who is is uh, trying to do great things. And I think even though the stories are very specific, those universal themes are what really appeals to an audience. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you can reflect the world back by doing an intricate story about something you know, because I think it translates. And I think... Uh, unplugging is absolutely relatable. It's specific to this one couple and their their problems and a guy who makes hot sauce for a living. But at the end of the day, it's about, you know, what, what pulls us apart from each other. And also this, that we're swimming in the soup of technology and we don't even realize how it's ruining things in our lives or challenging things in our lives. Uh, before I let you go, let's do a quick plug for the Veep uh, podcast. That sounds like a lot of fun going back over and having a look at the at the previous episodes and and just giving people some insight to a show that they have loved for years. Uh, I currently am doing a, a Veep podcast with uh, Tim Simons, which yeah. will be coming out uh, in a month or so, a couple months uh, on a platform called All Things Comedy here. But we basically go through old episodes of Veep and then we bring on our friends like Tony and Julia and Sam Richardson, and we just shoot the breeze and uh, talk about each episode. I love it. Well, I'll be uh, tuning in. Uh, Thanks very much, and congratulations on the film. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. I have a very special guest in studio, Kevin Doyle. You know him from his most famous role, Downton Abbey's second footman, Joseph Mosley. We'll talk about Downton Abbey in just a little bit. But first, I want to talk about his latest project, Pressure. If you find yourself in the Toronto area in the next four or five weeks, you'll want to check out this stage show, now playing at the Royal Alexandra Theatre. In the show, he plays Dr. James Stagg, the real-life meteorologist whose weather forecasts determined the date of the D-Day landings as part of Operation Overlord. It's a very intense but also really funny play about the most important weather forecast of all time. Here's the story in Doyle's own words. It's about the run-up to D-Day, early June 1944. 350,000 men are waiting to cross the Channel to liberate Europe. There are 7,000 naval vessels sort of gathered around the British Isles, and uh, which must have taken months, if not years, of planning to sort of coordinate. And they're just waiting for um, the go-ahead from the meteorologists. And uh, the weather has been absolutely beautiful. Blue skies, not a cloud. And this, uh, this guy turns up, uh, the chief meteorologist, and, uh, and says, it might look beautiful, uh, but uh, in a couple of days' time, it's gonna, there's going to be a turn for the worse. 
because there's this thing called uh, the jet stream, which a lot of uh, particularly American meteorologists kind of just sort of poo-poo. They just didn't really think it was uh, a, a thing. Whereas uh, in, in Europe, um, a, f- a few sort of clever heads got together and said, yeah, this thing is, is real, and it, it massively affects... Uh, you know the, the world's weather. So a big argument ensues about mm-hmm. what is going to happen on, on the morning of the fifth of June, which was the proposed D-Day date. And uh, yeah, and that's where the play sort of starts. We're faced with four, soon to be five storms in the Atlantic, of unprecedented intensity for the time of the year. You know, I'm not a weatherman, Doctor Stagg, but you expect me to believe that forecast? I mean, look out the window for God's sakes. Are you aware of consequences of postponing even for as little as 24 hours? I think I am. Essentially, I would be cancelling deep. And you play the meteorologist, the, the British, troublesome meteorologist. The troublesome meteorologist. <laughs> and it's interesting that when we first meet you, uh, you're very dismissive uh, of people. You're just all focused on work. The office that they've given you isn't good enough. It doesn't have mm. all the equipment you need. And then as the play goes on, we learn more and more uh, about Stag. Mm. The play is called Pressure. And uh, <laughs> uh, and I suppose it, it's, it's about... Uh, first reading it's it's about the weather yeah. uh, about air pressure but it it, it becomes evident uh, as the play progresses that there's an awful lot of pressure on him mm-hmm. and it's not just uh the the immediate circumstances uh, but also there's stuff going on in his private life as well which sort of um, which comes up um, um so yeah yeah I wouldn't want to sort of give too much away. but Yeah, yeah we don't want to give much yeah. away, but the character has uh, a real arc. Uh, and it's interesting to see him uh, come to another place from where we first meet him. Mm-hmm. And and I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed the performance because I thought it was subtle. That's what, I guess that's what I'm saying. I, I found the, the subtleties in his character were revealed by you very subtly over the course of the, mm. the two-hour running time of the play. And that's what you want as a, as a viewer. Mm. You want this, the excitement of this story, but you also want to care about the characters mm. and, and know that you know, what you're feeling, that anxiousness that you're feeling as a viewer, is real and that the, the, the characters feel it as well. And I, I felt that watching you. Oh, good, good. I mean, he's described as being very brusque and rude, by certain people, and uh, but you understand, you you begin to understand why he's like that mm-hmm. because he cares so much about the information that he's trying to impart, and um, and a- a- anything else, you know, uh, is just just gets in the way, yeah. and um, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a really it's a lovely part to play in as much as you allow the audience to sort of gradually learn about why he is the way he mm-hmm. is. Uh, the, the pressures that he's under, and um, and you know he, he's just that kind of a bloke who sort of uh, is is reluctant to sort of yeah s- spill you know he's not a hugger no he's not a hugger no. <laughs> I don't care how you do it but I am relying on you and Colonel Craig to tell me if the weather is going to be good on Monday this weather is likely to last at least two to three days Saturday Sunday and most likely Monday D Day I don't agree. What we decide now, together, will determine whether the invasion goes ahead or not. I suspect you know more about Monday's weather than Colonel Crick ever will. Help I make the right decision. Well, you're a history buff uh, in real life. Was that part of the reason that you took on this play? 
No, I, I mean, I, I took on the play because um, I really wanted to get back into the theatre. Uh, I've been doing a lot of filming the last mm -hmm. few years and uh, I don't do theatre very often. And so I just thought it was time. I mean, we were meant to do this two and a half years ago, yeah. but the, the world events took over. <laughs> um, so uh, so I, but I was really keen to do it. And, uh, and I kind of stuck with it despite all the sort of the various postponements that this show has had to endure. But uh, I, I just love the play. It's a, it's a, it's a play full of humanity. And um, so I, I kind of stuck with it. You're listening to Kevin Doyle on The Richard Krauss Show. His new play, Pressure, is now on stage at the Royal Alexandra Theatre in Toronto. I read somewhere where you say you had to learn this three times, essentially. I did, it, it, yes. There's a lot to it. I mean, there's a lot of technical jargon. Yes. There's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of, uh, there's a, just a lot of stuff going on. And yeah. so you had to learn it. I guess it slips away after a certain amount of time if you're not performing it. Well, it's fascinating, actually, because uh, I, I learned the part uh, prior to starting rehearsals. And then, obviously, COVID happened, so we, we knocked that on the head. And so I knew it was going to be at least a year. And so... Um, and so I, when I revisited it um, a, a year or so later, I thought, I wonder how long it'll take for me to relearn it. And actually, it's a, it's a strange thing about the, sort of the human brain and about how it can retain um, rhythms and lines. Mm. So I found that really interesting. So it actually came back really rather quickly. Uh, as did the sort of the Scottish accent, yeah, so which yeah, I have yeah. to also do. I don't think that you can underestimate the importance of the events that we see in the play. This was the turning point uh, of World War II. If this had failed, the world would have been different or the world yeah. would be different today. Yeah. And I think those stakes are, are uh, really well defined in the play and really made me uh, feel the, the, the pressure that I think you're yeah. supposed to well, as an audience as, member. Yeah, you know, 350,000 men uh, waiting to cross the channel to liberate Europe and um, as I said, 7,000 naval vessels waiting to cross that small yeah. journey, but um, in some ways a massive journey. Mm -hmm. um, a and, journey into destiny kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and if, um, and if the weather is as bad as he's forecasting, then it will be, as one of the characters says, it will be a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, thousands and thousands of men's lives would have been lost. And, and, and as, you, as you said, you know, the... the, the European history, if not indeed world history, would have changed. Um, and so it's probably the most important weather forecast <laughs> in history, yeah, actually, yeah. because it, it, so much uh, was dependent on it. And it, it all happened, uh, an argument between two men mm -hmm. in a room in a rather bland office building on the south coast of England. Yeah over a period of a couple of days. Do you think that pressure has any messages for a contemporary audience, for the people that are seeing it today? What does it say to them? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I suppose if it says anything, it says um, if you truly believe, if you truly believe in something, if you truly believe that what, what, you, what, what your experience and your instincts have taught you, then um, stick 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 to your guns, really, because um, that's what he does. Mm -hmm. He, um, despite everything that uh, he's faced with, despite uh, the arguments that come to him, despite all of the, um, the 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 possible outcomes, he says, "No, look, I've been doing this for twenty five years. I think I'm right." And despite there are moments of self doubt that he has in the play, but he knows his facts and uh, he believes in facts, and um, and. 
I suppose that, that's a pretty potent message these days because a lot of people yeah. reject that. Yeah, they do, don't they? Uh, who's who's facts? Um, yeah. So I, yeah, uh, he's a scientist, and so he believes in sort of you know, if if things have been proven, then that they have to be accepted. You began in the theatre, and it's it's lovely to see you on stage in pressure. Uh, but being an actor was not always in the cards. You weren't play acting when you were a child. What led you to the theatre? It wasn't really until you were in your teens, your late teens, yeah. as I understand, that you uh, made a, a push towards performing. Yeah, I, I, I suppose it's... I think you're so influenced when, when you're sort of in your late teens by the friends that are around you, mm -hmm. aren't you? Um, so their interests become your interests. Um, and so I, I, I had a group of friends who... Um, were fantastically influential in just the way I kind of learnt things and sort of... Uh, so they were interested in the theatre and music and um, and I, I took on those as well. And uh, th they introduced me to you know, school plays and things like that. I had no idea what I was going to do, Richard. I, um, I was at a complete loss. I hadn't worked hard enough at school. Mm. I didn't have the qualifications to go to university. And so... Um, I was, yeah, I was at a bit of a loss, and um, and a, a friend, a friend of mine, suggested that I try out for a drama school, and they're expensive things to audition for, and uh, it meant a lot of travelling around. So I, I, I had one shot at it, and uh, thankfully uh, they took me on. Um, the drama school that I auditioned for, they took me on, and uh, it changed my life. Because uh, I've no idea what I would have done mm. had I not got in. And what was it about it? Was it the first round of applause that you ever got? Was it that you were able maybe to get out of your head a little bit and play a different yeah. character? Uh, what was it that, that really know. kept you interested? It's a funny thing about actors. I think they've all got different reasons mm. why they become actors. It, and it's, it's very rarely sort of stage-struck at an early age. It's usually right. to do with... Either they fall into it for one reason or another, or it's the one thing that they're good at, or they don't have any any other options. Uh, and uh, but but it is also that thing about being on a stage and realizing that you're quite good at something, mm -hmm. and get and as you say, getting that applause. Yeah. And it's sort of uh, it's the most extraordinary feeling, realizing that oh, I'm actually quite good at something. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and yeah yeah, it's, 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 it's been a, an absolute joy actually to be able to do this for a living the other day when you came out on stage before you had said a word there was a round of applause 2500 yeah, people that's, weird. that's very that's... strange <laughs> <laughs> that's not something that happens in britain <laughs> that's a sort of a north american thing uh, so yeah have to get used to that well it's funny that you said it because you compared uh the or you said about the success of downton abbey uh, British actors on the whole don't often have that experience, that international mm. acclaim. It's quite rare. Um, what was it like to be on the inside of that roller coaster? Extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, unprecedented as well. Because as I said, uh, and I think I mentioned to you the last time I was on this show, um, it sort of, it just doesn't happen to British actors really in the way that it happened for us on that show. Um, it's a... Uh, we knew that it was going to be successful at home, but nobody anticipated, nobody anticipated mm -hmm. the, the success, that international success that the show had. You're listening to Kevin Doyle on The Richard Krause Show. His new play, Pressure, is now on stage at the Royal Alexandra Theatre in Toronto. You know, even people like Maggie Smith were saying that 
before Downton, she could happily go to the supermarket and buy her groceries. But after that, you know, and by this yeah. time, she was a you know, multi-Oscar winner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but she, she could happily go to the shops. But after Downton, no, her life changed. And all our lives changed um, and continues to change. So, And it affords me opportunities to be able to do mm-hmm. parts like this. Because, uh, you know, people, oh, okay, well, we'll get him in. Oh, if you take a walk down through the streets of Toronto. I took the subway down here today. Your picture is everywhere. I noticed that. That's you a are little, everywhere. That's that a has little to be a little strange. weird, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm used to sort of being in an ensemble. Right. Uh, and so to, to be sort of, to have my photograph uh, sort of on banners and uh, enormous <laughs> things outside the airport, that's a little, it's a little strange. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back into an ensemble, hiding away again. Yeah. Well, uh, you said another quote I have here from you. Uh, you sort of forget how familiar your face is to an awful lot of people, and then you get used to it. So mm. the last time you came to visit here was four years ago. It was pre-pandemic, whenever mm-hmm. that was. Time has just become a big flat circle yeah. for me. I, I don't remember. So let's say four years ago. And the security guard who let you in downstairs played it cool, but when after you left, she had a kind of a breakdown. Oh. <laughs> it was extraordinary, yeah. Yeah. and and you were very like hello, hello, and just yeah. to walk by, and she, Mr. Mosley said hello to me. <laughs> Mr. Mosley said hello, and she just could not get over it. And uh, I guess you just have to understand now that when you go out, there's going to be a, a yeah. fairly large portion of the population yeah. who go. I yeah. love that guy. Yeah, and it's 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 that's fine um, because you know I can still walk around the streets yeah. uh, and go to go to the shops, and most of the time people don't even notice. Yeah, uh, which is lovely. That's that's a that's a good way to live your life. I think any more than that, uh, I I don't think I'd like to have. I can't imagine sort of being you know Brad Pitt or right. Tom Hanks or something like that. Well, no, when, when I have interviewed very famous people like the Pitts and the yeah. George Clooney's and yeah. people like that. I'll come home and my wife always says, what were they like? What were they like? And I always say, they're as normal as someone who is that famous can be. Because you can't do normal things. You no. simply can't. No. And so they're, they live in a different world. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess there are benefits to that. But, uh, yeah, if you can't get to the supermarket, what's the point? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or while you're here in Canada, go to Tim Hortons and get a oh, double-double yes. yes, and some yes. Timbits. Okay, <laughs> yes. Yes, and I've got to get the thing with fries and gravy. Oh, poutine. Poutine, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll talk about where to go. Because okay. right. poutine is a, yeah. a, a source of a great conversation in Canada because there are good poutines and there are bad poutines. Okay. So we'll, yeah, yeah. All right, okay. And, and people will have all sorts of various opinions about that. Okay. Um, is there more Downton Abbey? I think um, there's certainly an appetite for it, mm-hmm. and I think uh, there's every chance. It wasn't the last one. I guess it was the first one. I hosted the thing. Yeah, that's you were, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we we had an audience, and we were backstage. I hadn't seen the audience. And do you remember when we walked out? And about three quarters of them were dressed as though they had, they were just ready for tea at Downton Abbey. It's it was mad, in, isn't extraordinary. It? Absolutely yeah. mad. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's a sort of a North American thing which just doesn't happen at home 
you know, they, they're, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, Kevin, thank you so much, and congratulations on Pressure. Thank you very much. Thank Richard. you. That was Kevin Doyle on The Richard Krause Show. If you happen to find yourself in Toronto in the next four or five weeks, check him out on stage at the Royal Alexandra Theatre in Pressure. It's a really great show, and he's really good in it, and he's not like Mr. Mosley at all. You'll see him do something completely different. And the critics are raving about it, calling it tense, thrilling, and funny. So a big thanks to Kevin Doyle for stopping by, talking about Downton Abbey and pressure. Also, a big thanks to Matt Walsh for coming by and talking about his film Unplugging. You can find that on VOD right now. And if you want more Matt Walsh, you can always check out Veep reruns or catch him in the new Netflix film, You People. But as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.